0: Here we are. Here we are. I don't know yeah. beans.
1: <laughs> I mean, today I was thinking that I just wouldn't ever talk about broad beans again. All right. And it's only because I was because some of our broad beans have come up today. Oh, or have yesterday. Yeah. So well, you're talking. It about was it. yeah, quite yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like while well, I was I was wondering whether I might report the good news, and I guess I decided that I wouldn't, and now you have well, forced me into it. Right? <laughs> well, I wasn't talking about broad beans. Oh, just beans I was in just general. Talking about
0: beans in general. Uh-huh.
1: Well, yeah. we're definitely a. Pro beans podcast. Oh, yeah. Easily.
0: Easily. I actually looked up the other night if I could get pinto bean seeds because I was like, if I could just grow a ton of pinto beans, that'd be a good staple. Mm. Like, why not?
1: What's your favorite bean?
0: Pinto beans. (laughs) (laughs) The common pinto bean. Mm. Uh, I'm not actually
1: sure what pinto beans are. It's like refried
0: beans, brown beans kind of. Like when you think of Mexican food, sure, and not black beans. Their pinto okay. beans are brown. Okay. 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 Although I looked up, what just they trying to work
1: out, like. out whether there is a there is a word for them. <laughs> oh, sure. In uh, yeah. in UK yeah. English, the
0: cummerbund bean. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, well, we're back. The yep. COP26 talks were a success. Um, it's it's all solved. over.
1: Climate change, yeah. solved.
0: I saw it today. BBC front page was like, Boris Johnson tells COP26 to stop, like, you know, sitting on their hands. And it's just like, <laughs> ah, ideology at work. Here the really headlines
1: are. on articles that I haven't read that I've seen are mostly, like, <laughs> um, the pledge that, have come out, that has come out of COP is that everybody has pledged that they will come up with, like comprehensive ways to cut their emissions next year yeah next year they'll yeah. come up with some explanation as to how yeah. they're actually going to implement comprehensive cuts in yeah. carbon which basically means they've just decided nothing now yeah and i saw i saw another headline that was like the results of this a study has come out that said i don't know whether either it's the results of this meeting or whether just other trend we're on is like we're set for like 2.6 degrees of warming or something and whatever Sick. cop seems to have done nothing about it
0: Sick. I wonder at what point there's going to be the break, because, like, the media is, to a large extent, like, come on, governments, do something about it. And even, like, vaguely getting, like, is the problem capitalism? Here's a 200-word essay to say no, <laughs> you know? Like, at least they're, like, I don't know. I wonder when the break is going to come where it's, like, either the media has to stop being, like, anti-state or anti-capitalist like capitalist in some kind of sense... Or they've just kind of, like, obviously they're not going to go all in and be like, do the revolution. But, like, a break has kind of got to come, I feel like. I don't know. Especially something like the BBC. I don't know. Yeah. When the, like, discourse is going to change from, like, everybody do something now, the world is going to collapse, to, like um this has always been inevitable deal with it you know what i mean i don't know i feel like it's the it's i feel like the, i've what i'm saying is the conversation is about to kind of shift like how republicans were always like climate change isn't real and then they kind of were like it's real but we're not causing it and then they're like okay we're doing it but like america first who cares like i feel like the general media discourse is about to shift again we'll see that's okay. what it is. It'll be fun. Into It'll something which is more
1: critical or more demanding of governments or just you're expecting some change. I'm expecting
0: change and, and a, I don't think it's going good. to be good. Okay. <laughs> I think it's going to be change along the lines of like, this was always inevitable. Um, so top 10 tips for, you know, sewing your pants to be flood plants. Or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. A BuzzFeed listicle on the bus. Capris. Capris.
1: <laughs> 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 How There's to survive the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. I have no hope that the BBC is going to be the sort of like, Champion of the new oh, sure. uh, media criticism of the government or governments. Mm. I mean, I think the important change in the discourse is going to have to be: we're just going to have to get rid of fossil fuel companies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean that. I mean that's the that's the thing. Like, I don't know if 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 smart capitalists wanted to maintain the world. the way that it roughly exists at present in terms Mm -hmm. of its climate and the way that the climate affects their ability to perpetuate class relations roughly as they are and Mm. allows them to continue to make a profit, they would just be like, we're just going to jettison this wing, this portion of the capitalist class. Right, you just have to find something else to do and we're just getting Mm -hmm. rid of it all. Um, Now, I don't know how essential the fossil fuel Portion the portion of, the, cap- portion of capitalist, the capitalist class that produces fossil fuels and makes its profit in fossil fuels. I don't know how essential that profitability is to the profitability of capitalism in general. I would imagine like,
0: extraordinarily really important.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the process of divestment mm. would be quite excessive in terms of like the number of sort of hedge funds and pension funds and just the <laughs> amount of banking that invests in these um, industries, you know? So like...
0: You're right, Dan. Nobody thinks about the hedge fund managers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wonder to what extent the ruling class is even sentient. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is a much bigger conversation. <laughs> but not like not like in a, like a Zing way, but like is would it be possible for the ruling class to make a conscious decision like that? I don't know. Sure. Yeah, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, have, I'd wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know i guess we'll see <laughs>
1: we shall see i mean always we the companies see. who
0: have always owned patents on solar panels and stuff like that have always been the like shitty fossil fuel companies and stuff so mm-hmm. it's just a matter of like wow well, fucking no mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not mm-hmm. gonna pretend like i know mm-hmm. what i'm talking about i
1: was thinking about your like what you brought up the other day when we were talking on youtube
0: oh on youtube <laughs> on the
1: youtube channel that we have dan where we
0: post good content yeah sure go ahead
1: <laughs> about the distinction between. Um, the the ex- existential experience of living with the threat mm. of climate change as opposed to the living with the threat of nuclear apocalypse. Um, and I guess the distinction seems to be to me that like, it's relatively obvious, I suppose, that like, nuclear apocalypse is a cancellation of the future, but it's also a drastic cancellation of the present. Whereas sure. like oh, God, climate yeah. change is like the cancellation of the future, but we've still got to live in the present My God, with, without, without the prospect of a future, you know,
0: or like that's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I think I only realized when okay, we started just, talking just... about that, that it is still, it's not one or the other. It's both. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all oh, right. We still uh-huh. have
1: bombs. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe we should just hope for nuclear apocalypse.
0: Okay. (laughs)
1: Maybe it will invite the alien comrades to come and save us.
0: I have heard Mike Davis before say that he's like, next 15 to 20 years, there's going to be a regional nuclear war. It's like, (laughs) oh, okay, cool. Sick. Yeah, don't forget about that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. all right, cool. Um, (sighs) It's really going to look lame when, like, if a nuclear confrontation ever happens again when like labor or whoever were like soft on getting or like just democrats or anybody or like fucking anybody with a brain was like soft on like well should we get rid of these should we i don't know let's keep it let's keep a lot like Mm. i mean Mm -hmm. I, i know that at least it's been kind of part of a conversation just with scotland and the snp or whatever but like Oh, man, you never hear that get bought up in America. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's still a Cold War hangover or, like, whatever. But, like, you just never hear that talked about, ever. Yeah. Mm,
1: I I mean, the argument is you keep nuclear weapons so that they'll never be used, right? But the best way to not use nuclear weapons is just not have them.
0: Yeah. You make a good point. (laughs) You make a very good point. I don't know. Um, how many nuclear weapons does Israel have, or is that not something anybody knows? I, don't
1: know, I think officially they don't have any nuclear weapons. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> cool. I mean, it would be pretty cool if it, they were like, "Guys, we don't have any." Wink, wink. But they like actually didn't have any. Like, I would respect that. Sure. I okay. Think be yeah, yeah, cool. yeah.
1: Yeah. They're like, it's we don't. Like a, wink, wink. Like a, it's a double bluff. <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's what everybody's doing, man. Let's yeah. just believe that. There are not. Maybe they got dogs.
1: rid of all the nuclear weapons in the 50s. That was be just so been nice. like a, it. Yeah. was
0: Kennedy and Christian yeah. got together and said, you know what? Yeah. It was a
1: little close that time. It turned out it wasn't feasible to build thousands and thousands <laughs> of nuclear warheads. So they just like built all these bunkers and put all these guys in them, pretending yeah. that they were going to. It was all up, CGI. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh huh. Uh, yeah, also one one more thing on that. It's, it's funny because there is a bit more of, at least for me, and I think culture in general, pop culture in general, more of a morbid fascination with that kind of apocalypse than with the like climate apocalypse, right? Because it's like, I don't know, I guess there have been movies made that are like vaguely alluring about like post-nuclear worlds. And it's like, not as many people, you're just kind of wandering around empty cities and it sucks and it's depressing, but there's like this morbid fascination with that. Climate change, there's nothing like that. It's like, oh, we've done polar bears, fuck. Everything good is gone, including food. It's just like, okay, great. Yeah,
1: how do you do a cool, like, climate change apocalypse movie?
0: Waterworld, I guess. Yeah, I've never cool. seen Waterworld. I, really? Yeah. I've been to the Waterworld stunt show six or seven times, I <laughs> say. You must really have enjoyed it. I think I've only ever seen like parts of it on TV, like the movie, but okay. the stunt show is great. Okay. If you're ever in LA, folks, go to the Waterworld Stunt Show. Mm-hmm. This episode is bought to you by Universal Studios. So. <laughs> um, well, Dan, shall we get into it? Let's get into because it. Because I think a very good transition... <laughs> into what we read today which do you have it in front of you because i don't it's
1: called the rise and future demise of world of the world capitalist system concept, concepts for a comparative analysis by Immanuel
0: wallerstein excellent i f- side note i sent this to a friend of mine and when he downloaded it for some reason it downloaded straight to like a shared work drive and he like didn't notice it for a second and was like that'd be pretty bad if like my boss went on and just saw like you know, the rise and demise of capitalism.pdf. <laughs> <laughs> like, <what> this? <laughs> um, I think the
1: PDF, very fortunately, has a very obscure title, which is just oh, yeah. a series of numbers and letters and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Suitable for downloading at work.
0: Yeah. Well, also, let's just say, because I kind of relied on this pretty heavily as well, you sent me an essay titled The Critique of the World Systems Theory class relations or division of labor, question mark, by Albert burgesson uh, U of A. Go devils or whatever? I don't know. Um, and I, so I guess we can say that we read both of those in tandem. But it was mainly uh, to look at world systems theory and um, this kind of like methodological framework that Wallerstein, I guess, created um, and is working with in kind of like a Marxist bent. I think that's fair to say? I think so, yeah. I mean, I... I went
1: looking for something to read about this topic because I, well, I was. In, I guess I was introduced to the idea that Emmanuel Wallerstein represented a school of thought that we could briefly counterpose to our Brennerian orthodoxy that we've <laughs> adopted as our, um,
0: our podcast's preferred uh, framework for historical analysis. Which has been very, I think... Th- for Marxists, has kind of just become, I guess it's just because of the verso books, but it's kind of become like the wood, like uh, the Meekson's wood yeah. framework, of which she basically is just like, hey, Brenner. Huh? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, the Brenner-Woods mm. theory for the transition yeah. from feudalism to capitalism. <laughs> um, although in a lot of ways, in all the ways that matter, I suppose, this essay is not really about... Uh, a justification from Wallerstein of his particular description about how the transition from feudalism to capitalism actually came about, although it's very heavily um, involved in the argument that he's making, but more so the description that he's making is one of the... um, the, uh, developing a framework for understanding the development of the capitalist world system once it came into existence um although i think when we get into it i want to we'll both want to maybe recenter this question of when capitalism actually came about and how it came about um mm. in relation to that, to this discussion
0: yeah yeah this essay just seemed to be more along the lines of putting forward this framework for kind of understanding everything like it seemed to it was definitely like systems theory right and he's dry he's intentionally drawing on uh in the weeds history and sociology and anthropology and economics and he even says at the beginning i think he's quoting Luke Cash where he just basically says like he's talking about marxism and how that relates to like systems theory and world systems theory and stuff and he basically says that like the great contribution right of marx to kind of this this frame of thought isn't isn't like uh, privileging economics above everything else. It's the point of view of the totality and take into account kind of like as much as you possibly can, they would just say everything into understanding the way that systems operate. And in this, his main research question seems to be like, how can we use that point of view to understand capitalism? And yeah, part of that is understanding where capitalism came from. But he's also like, Uh, are we at a point where there's a demise happening and what would that mean to a potential transition to socialism um and i think he kind of just like uh at least to me it seems like he just kind of like destroys a lot of bourgeois sociology economics etc etc history especially by just being like hey the main problem with the way that almost all of us talk about this stuff is that what he would say is just, like, reifying the nation-state, right? I think this was maybe the biggest thing that I got from it because he's basically just saying, like, whenever you read a history or anything that's relatively bourgeois or even, like, Marxist history sometimes that, like, people just tend to take the nation-state as the sole unit of analysis and they go, you know, hey, uh, Spain was doing this at this point and so, hey, what does that mean for capitalism in Spain or whatever? Or if you're just trying to understand history... uh, You just look at like what England was doing at this time period and you don't look at the actual relations that were going on in between different countries um, or even just like the system as a whole. So he's basically just saying in order to counteract that you have to have this like big brain totalistic, I don't know, view of everything (laughs) and take into account the relations and the systems that operate in this one unit which is now the capitalist world system, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, he's basically saying that you can't understand how one one country's capitalist economy works or how one country relates to the mode of production that we call capitalism until you look at its various relationships with various other states, um, how its trade functions, um, how the resources of periphery states are exploited to... Um, to bolster and secure the sort of like the greater or the greater economic power of countries in the economic core of the world kind of thing. Mm. Um, So, yeah, you're quite right to say it's how a state is included in the world system rather than... um, its own economic system which is of significance
0: yeah i think it kind of confused me too because i was like i took that at first to be like okay sure ignore the nation state gotcha will do but then it's like no that isn't what he's saying he's saying that like yeah no it is a unit of analysis but it's not the only one mm-hmm. and even if you want to use that as your sole unit of analysis it's impossible because like the way that a state comprises itself and what a state is is depends on what you're saying, which is like how it relates to other systems and not other systems, but other states, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, the, the, some of the core units of analysis, the core terminological units of analysis in this essay are the distinction between core periphery and semi-periphery states. Mm. And so it's definitely much about states in terms of like, that's the unit of analysis, but it's just how those states relate to one another rather than analyzing the internal economic operation of those states Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and i guess maybe we can just get into kind of what you were saying about like why why you wanted to read this about origins of capitalism and stuff like that because i think a really good point that is if not made here directly implied that is like he, he he'll admit that like okay one of the main reasons that non-Marxists have a problem with the Marxist theory of history as being, like, capitalism wage labor is because you can go to, like, any point in history and find, like, some schmuck that paid another schmuck to do something he didn't want to do, and you could call that wage labor, right? But again, he's saying that, like, this is the main... One of the... Basically, the main economic law of capitalism now in its, like, totality. And that that's one of the main, like, distinctions of capitalism. And I guess that that really (laughs) informs kind of obviously this is a bit of a truism, but, like, how he understands capitalism to have developed. Um, And it is interesting counterposing that to Brenner and Wood. Um, But I I guess we can kind of get into it. Just to say, to start us off, I guess, whereas Brenner and Wood had this, like, very specific, right, like, idea of when and where capitalism happened, he's saying, what does he call it, the long century, and it's something like, oh, God, 15, 1450 to like 1640 or something like that. Yeah, or even yeah,
1: yeah, 1460 to 1740 or something. 1640. It's a long. It's like a, yeah, yeah, 150 year <laughs> period basically. Mm. Um, including the entire 16th century in, mm. Um yeah, I mean the I guess the main critique that is made of the Brenner wood thesis from proponents of a world systems theory analysis is to look at Brenner's emphasis on the development of the class relations internal to England as like mm-hmm. here is what well, were well, well, one here is the the origin point of capitalism something that happens but in internal to the class relations inside of feudal england that develop new social relations that create new economic laws that are what we now recognize as being the the economic basis of capitalism um but that cri- that critique which for my um for my limited and very lay understanding seems a little harsh is sort of to say well brenner isn't particularly interested from that starting point with England's relationship to all portions of the world, particularly um the European colonialism and exploitation that's happening in South America at that period of time, right Is to be uh, and also like um to some extent, I've heard the argument made that Brenner kind of excludes an analysis of the kind of colonialism that was happening in Ireland at the same time, kind of thing mm. like there is perhaps a critique that is made of Brenner's analysis, which is to say to ignore the colonial exploitation of um, English colonies and to focus purely on the economic activity that's happening internal to the boundaries and the borders of England. The critique that Brenner would make of um, of Wallerstein is that he is... Um, well, the phrase that Brenner uses is neo, a neo-Smithian, but I think maybe we could adopt Ellen Mixon's Wood language and say that he's um, somebody who is a proponent of the commercialization thesis, whereby capitalism happens at a certain... Um, it's a, it's about a quantitative increase rather than a qualitative change, right? Mixon's Wood and Brenner are looking at a qualitative change that happens in the social relations of um, the class relations of England and Emmanuel Wallerstein is much more interested or is focusing on a uh, quantitative increase in um, world trade it's when the world economy gets to a certain size and scale and integratedness that you can say capitalism has come about Um, or at least that's That's my understanding of the Brenner critique of what Wallerstein is saying. Um, Although I I think Wallerstein's argument is a bit more nuanced in that. Um, And that he is definitely like at least trying to demarcate his world system, his description of the capitalist world system from systems that have come before it. He's not saying that there's a uh, continuity between the two. He is saying that there is a distinction, I suppose. Hmm. Um,
0: yeah and i wonder if i guess Wallerstein would come would say to that though that like brenner and then wood would be would have this view of like history that privileges certain things above others unnecessarily and for him that would be like Class relations and class struggle, which isn't to say that he doesn't have an understanding of those things, and they do they do fall into his line of thought, but it seems like he's trying to have this—I I keep saying this, but I don't know if this is a word—totalistic, like, view of everything, including class relations and including exchange relations, which is this kind of, like, quantitative increase, but in so doing that, it kind of seems like he doesn't privilege class relations enough. And I guess that's what Brenner would say, right? That's just Brenner's critique is like, you just don't weigh this aspect of history enough. But Wallerstein would say, no, I'm weighing it. I'm weighing it. It's just, um, you know, you got to weigh it with everything else. But I think that maybe like the historic specificity of capitalism kind of speaks a little bit more to, at least in my mind, like what Brenner and Wood might be saying, because it's like, this was pretty random, like this development of capitalist relations and stuff like that. And like... I think that as a systems theorist, Wallerstein would probably say like things get very chaotic in these transitional phases and then something bifurcates and you go one way. Um, and so, I mean, like that's kind of what leads me to kind of be more on the side of like Brenner and Wood and just kind of think like, well, okay, like it was just this kind of random development of like class, these specific class relations in England that led to this like global domination of things. But at the same time, you do want to be like, we I mean, got to look at everything, I guess. And like, Perhaps uh, you need a pinch of what Walderstein is saying to have an understanding of the way that the actual world system of capitalism uh, eventually developed and operates now. Um, Because I don't think that necessarily what Brenner and Wood were saying explains everything and certainly doesn't explain the way that, like, the core is able to exploit the periphery, right? I guess. I don't fucking know. (laughs) Read it yourself, you fucks. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs)
1: Um, yeah Brenner and Wood are interested in a behavior change that happens Mm. that needs or more importantly they say this behavior change needs explaining Sure, people don't just suddenly start behaving differently with no cause and for no reason kind of thing Mm. Um, now I think Wallerstein does recognize that some type of behavior change has happened and because he's interested in the relationship of states in the world to one another and this sort of like extended world system the thing that he really fixates on is uh global trade and trade within that world economic system and he puts a real emphasis on a tr- a development of market-based trade as opposed to um, a form of trade which basically just facilitates redistribution of goods, if that makes sense. Mm. So he's like, we would recognize this from our previous readings about the origins of capitalism, right? There is a form of trade which Mixer's word to describe as like trade particular to the feudal mode of production. Um, when we did that reading, we w- we learned the word arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> um to mean the process of uh, buying a good cheaply in one market and selling it more expensively in another market, which implies that there are two economic markets and where you're making the profit is moving from one market to another. And um, Emmanuel Wallerstein does recognise that a change happens when capitalism develops, whereas where there is now only one market and so there's no possibility for that kind of trade to take place... Um, and so there is this renewed emphasis in capitalism to um extracting profits in turn to the productive process itself, right? You make your profits by producing more cheaply. Mm. Um which he does recognize as a specific um a specific change that happens and a specific distinction between the two quote-unquote modes of production. I put it quote-unquote because he doesn't use the phrase modes of production, really. Um, he just uses the phrase world systems. And, but I think the thing that he, um, he willingly and knowingly ignores is um, the idea of um, the relationship between classes as being determinative of what... Uh, or, or being determinative of how we define capitalism um, he quotes various uh marxist historians um ch- chief amongst whom is maurice dobbs who we came across or dob who we came across when we were reading ellen mixers wood many 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 episodes ago <laughs> um and he quotes these marxist historians to be saying that what is determinative of the capitalist mode of production is actually the relationship, a relationship between the exploited and the exploiting class internal to um, countries that are operating under the capitalist mode of production, have capitalist social relations, which is one of the relationship between a free labourer who is compensated for his work in the form of a wage... Uh, And we've come across this idea of that being determinative of capitalism in the past. When we've read Ellen Mix's word when she's talking about uh, capitalism being determined by exploitation that happens internal to the economic sphere as opposed to external to it, extra economic exploitation. Um, But he very quickly sidesteps that argument, basically. But he almost says that, like, okay, these historical... these. Marxist historians um, can lay great claim to be being very faithful to the word of Marx, but not faithful to his intent. He's almost saying that like he and his co-thinkers have a much better understanding of Marx's intentions, if not what actually Marx wrote, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sort of seeks to sideline that portion of the analysis of the capitalist mode of production and focus very heavily on. Um, global trade and a particular type of global trade as being determinative of what makes capitalism capitalism i suppose
0: yeah yeah and absolutely i wonder if we should step back just for a second and kind of talk about his mini systems and his like world empires and his world economies um he basically says that like how does he define a a A system as just having like a division of labor, I believe. He says we take the defining characteristic of a social system to be within it a division of labor, uh, such that the various sectors or areas within it are dependent upon economic exchange with others for the smooth and continuous provisioning of the needs of the area. So he basically says that like for a long time, there were just these mini-systems. Um, But one thing that I thought was interesting, he kind of defines mini systems as like these like insulated divisions of labors that are not totalities on a global sense, on a global scale. But um, he said that there are a lot fewer of those than you think. Because if you think back on like world history, you go, oh, there are probably just like a ton of them. But like maybe if you open up like a very bourgeois history textbook and you look at like, I don't know, like what pre-Roman Gaul looked like you just see these little splotches of like, here's where this tribe was and this tribe. And there were, you know, there are all these little mini systems and they're all, you know, operating on their own and all their own little cultures and they did their own things. But he's basically saying that like, even if you are like living in this little tiny rinky-dink like village, just farming sheep, and you're entirely like self-sustainable with you and your friends and you have this little tiny village or whatever, the moment that you like pay a protection cost as like, basically like almost every culture for like an extremely long period of time did to like an empire or like a warlord or somebody very far away, you cease to be like self-sufficient on your own and you're part of this like mini system, which is much larger and like even though you're self-sufficient on your own, this act of exchange, you kind of have to view it from the other end because it makes this like It makes another mini-system. So he's saying that, like, even though there might have been, like, a billion different villages or whatever, um, and you might want to look at, like, these different cultural barriers as being, like, determinative of a trillion different... uh, I'm being very hyperbolic, but, like, a trillion different uh, systems on its own. He's basically saying that that's not true. Um, But it also kind of doesn't really matter if we don't have anything like that anymore, which kind of gets to his next point, I guess. Um, Yeah, I think,
1: like... The mini-systems are basically just your pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer societies. Mm. They're the only um, forms of social life that human beings have existed in, which were entirely um, economically and culturally enclosed kind of thing. They have one culture and one economic system, and there's no relationship with uh, other groups that facilitates the meeting of their needs, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I suppose I wonder whether that's actually true. I, I mean, I guess there must have been some, but also I would imagine there was some amount of relationship between groups such that...
0: Yeah, it seems very strict.
1: I mean, yeah. Or it's, also just like I irregular
0: mean, connections. Yeah yeah,
1: groups, yeah, 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 you yeah. Know? But anyway, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that, that is the distinction that he's making. And then as soon as you have any amount of uh, contact, economic activity... Uh, you enter into a world system. Hmm. Or in the specific case in which he's talking, about, he does have the distinction, doesn't he, between world system and world empires, right? Yeah. The difference being that an empire has one political system and a world economy, as opposed to a world empire, has, like, multiple political systems. It's multiple political units in relationship to one another as opposed to uh, one dominant polity, I suppose. mm Um, and I guess this gets us to his sort of general theory of the various like his periodization of history I guess so like if a social system is his equivalent of a mode of production then it's kind of like the majority of the social systems of history if they haven't been mini systems then they've been predominantly world empires and what's kind of unique about capitalism is that it's a world economy rather than a world empire. Um, And it's only in that sort of world economy model that you get the possibility for the kind of like uh, market trade, market-based exchange that we were talking about earlier on. Mm.
0: Um, Yeah, he brings up something about luxury as well too in terms of luxury trade, which I thought was interesting. And like, while there might have been long-distance trade in a lot of these like world empires or even like I suppose an example would be like, well, I don't know. I'm a little confused on this because when what we talked about in Alan Meekson's Wood, what you brought up earlier about the like arbitrage of the grain being bought from, was it like somewhere in Scandinavia or whatever, or the Baltic states or whatever, to, was it the Netherlands? Yeah. Yeah. I think that my vague recollection
1: is that there was this relationship of trade between the Dutch Republic and yeah. um, the Baltic states, which was a. Uh, a form of trade predicated on arbitrage but it was a trade in staple food goods
0: yeah well and he makes this distinction right about like a division of labor is a system that kind of like provides for itself right in that everybody's working towards like sustaining everybody else and everybody's able to do that if you have that like self-contained that is a division of labor and so then that gets into the question of like well how does trade play into that And he's basically saying right that like You can have long-distance crazy trade, but still have this division of labor that's, like, insulated from those other systems, I guess, those other systems of division of labor. But then that seems like it just gets into semantics about, like, what defines luxury goods. And I guess you could easily say, right, that it's, like, things that are necessary to the reproduction of that division of labor. As soon as you, like, import all of your grain from one place, then you're not really, like, that isn't a self-contained division of labor anymore. But, like... I don't know. It made me wonder. I'd like to know more about that Ellen Mixon's wood example because we were talking about this earlier and I was wondering if you can have like necessary goods like grain act in a like luxurious manner if that makes sense because it's like to what extent did the Dutch people need that grain? To what extent were they just importing it because they could just make a killing on arbitrage and it wasn't necessary for like the reproduction of this division of labor? I don't really know. But then there's also like the flip side of that which is like I, I bought up the 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 Byzantine Empire in like 500 about how they had this monopoly on silk coming from China um and that able, that like allowed them to have this like primacy uh over the Mediterranean for a period because they were the only people importing it but it's like to what extent was that necessary for the reproduction of their division of labor, as opposed to them just making a killing on silk and being able to like hire a bunch of armies and stuff?
1: Or, or was it necessary to their maintenance of their, as you say, their sort of mm. military supremacy kind of thing? Like,
0: yeah, but like, does does military supremacy play into the division of labor? I guess if you're like about to be destroyed, I suppose. Sure. I, I really mean,
1: well, out. well, he, he 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 describes world empires as being quite unstable in that there has to be this amount of like investment in enforcement of the rule of one political system, I suppose, which might have some bearing on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Mm -hmm. I think it's just more of a question of like this kind of gray area between luxury goods where a luxury good can act as a necessary good and a necessary good can act like a luxury mm-hmm. good, I guess, which I don't really understand. Yeah,
1: when we were talking about this before, beforehand, and I was wondering whether the distinction might be, we might be misreading him or there might be a very charitable reading that you could give where you read luxury trade as being trade that's not, it's the trade itself, which is a luxury and not a necessity mm. rather than the item, the good itself yeah. being in some way luxurious kind of thing. I think, as far as I recall, that Ellen Meeks' Wood case that we're quoting from very vaguely, (laughs) I think the idea that she's presenting there is that like, a relationship of arbitrage that made a a staple good accessible to the Dutch Republic so cheaply meant that there could be this um, commitment of labour resources to developing other types of skilled labor in the republic because they didn't have to invest a huge amount of time in the production of agricultural goods kind of thing. Mm. I think it was actually quite essential to... It was a core constituent part of the division of labor of um, the feudal Dutch republic, I guess. Mm. Um, So I think in that case, it kind of speaks against Wallerstein's argument in that, like there was a kind of feudal trade that wasn't capitalist market trade, but that actually was essential to the division of labor of that. Um,
0: yeah. That. Yeah, I guess I'm just reading on. into it too much of like a sustenance question. Yeah. Like Maybe. these people didn't need it to like survive. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it yeah. was necessary for like right. their division of labor, I wonder. Yeah, I like your your
1: description of this as being a lot of semantic differences. I mm. I was reading this and being a bit like, he's working very hard to keep his system very clean <laughs> and sort of like to ha- to have no um yeah no sort of slippage he wants to say very definite things and not have there be any other sort of grey area examples mm. if that makes sense yeah um because there's a there's a period in this where he talks about there being multiple world systems existing in the world at, at once mm. and if it is necessary for him in his system to keep those world systems separate then for logical consistency's sake, he has to say this thing about trade happening in luxury goods but not in necessities to mean that these different these different world systems can keep their own divisions of labor and not be necess- necessary on um, trade with other world systems kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, in some ways I was reading it as a kind of like... Um, Slightly semantic game playing to keep their a yeah. degree of logical consistency in place. kind of thing.
0: Well, there is quite a bit of that in the bit where he outs himself as a Maoist. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, he gets into this debate that Mao was having about, like, was is China a socialist state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and basically, the person he was debating with, whose name I could easily pull up, but I hope Dan has written down, Li, liu Shaoqi, i think mm-hmm. um the debate was basically as far as i can tell uh the latter fellow was saying china socialist state duh and mao was saying no it's uh you fool it, you have to understand this is a socialist process and he's like are things gonna get messy again he's like things are definitely gonna get messy again because we haven't reached like you know I guess, the end of this process, although I don't even know if he would necessarily say that, like, there's an end to this process, but regardless, we're in the process right now, and that raised, like, a lot of questions. I was kind of hoping he would go more down the route when he was talking about this of, like, what you were just saying of, like, multiple world systems uh, taking place at the same time and coexisting and what that means, because what I kind of took from this, and I don't necessarily know if this is what he meant, but that, like doesn't matter whether China is socialist or not. It operated in this capitalist world system. So, like, whatever. It's kind of like, I guess, what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what the implications are for that in terms of, like, getting to socialism. But I'd imagine there are a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean,
1: at the very end, he does set the sights of a transition to socialism to be defined by the development of one socialist world government kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so we'll, yeah, leave the plausibility of that. Now.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, he's very much on the side of Mao, isn't he? That like mm-hmm. um, this is a a process. Basically, basically, the reason why he sides with Mao over this other fellow um, is that he doesn't believe that multiple systems can go can coexist in one um, division of labour. He's like the 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 world economy is predicated on one division of labor, as he reads it, in the 20th century. Um, or even in the period of the transition between feudalism and capitalism, he seems to be making the argument that, like, you can't have... It, it's not. He criticizes some Marxists for saying, well, the political economy of countries in South America was feudal whilst the... The, oh, sure. the countries that they were trading with or being exploited by in Western Europe were capitalist, right? He's saying that, like, if they're involved in one um, division of labor, if they were involved in one world system and world economy, then that world's economy is capitalist, and mm. you can't have there be two world systems in operation at the same time.
0: Yeah, I just, just not, not to interrupt, but I really thought that was interesting, and I haven't come down any, any way on that, because there is a huge question, right, of, like, if the class relations in these peripheral countries are different to like what we imagine capitalist wants to be, mm-hmm. what does that mean for the global domination of capital? And I think that he does a pretty good job of at least having an answer of, well, here's what that means. It's still capitalism, but you have to understand the, like, the dynamics of how these states interact with each other to basically like even come close to having a correct analysis of what capitalism even means. I I think I really appreciated that. I think I still don't really understand it, but I do really appreciate the like, I guess it's more of the totality. Right. And it's more of like, okay, like sure. The class relations here are like this, but that doesn't mean that it's not part of a capitalist system. Right. I really appreciated that. I think.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, that's part of his criticism of uh, the more, orthodox marxist historians that he's quoting from when they say that the only class relations of capitalism are the ones between free Mm. wage laborers and a capitalist and he's basically saying there are ways in which other forms of labor can function as um a commodity i suppose as an input to capitalist production Mm. they don't necessarily have to be relationships of wage labor and he very frustratingly then references another text of his, which we didn't have access to at the time. So Just by
0: saying, I've done this elsewhere. Yes. Well, <laughs> it's like, oh, and, okay.
1: Which um, <laughs> is fair play. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is tantalizing and frustrating at the same time. I I am suspicious mm. in the sense that um, my very limited understanding of, um, I guess, Marx's analysis of capitalism and Marxist labour value theory would say that like it's it's through the exploitation of wage labor that you that capitalists are able to reap a profit, and so I'm suspicious of these other modes of employment <laughs> i mean it's funny because he talks about slavery, but he also talks about that slavery being recompensed mm. um as if there is some amount of payment that is given. Again, it feels to me like he's sort of twisting and squirming very hard to sort mm. of make these other forms of um, labour fit into his definition of what a capitalist world economy looks like. Well, let's- that said, like um, slavery did function as a very significant input to capitalism, mm. particularly in the United States proper. Mm. So there is a place for it in an understanding of capitalism, which I'm not in a position to uh, explain or hold or understand at the moment. So there's definitely a big blank space there. But I am also, I look very dubiously on his definition, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we need to explain why he says that. Because he's not just saying, like, he's not just brushing off the class relations. Like, he's saying, like, in terms of, like, slavery, these were people, like... Right, like, he defines capitalism as, like, a way of just maximizing profits, basically, like, the constant drive to maximize profits. And he's basically saying that, like, in terms of at least some slavery, um, this was people operating under, like, market imperatives while trying to, like, react against those market imperatives. So he says for slavery, like, they were just trying to maximize their profit, and they realized a way that they could do that without wage labor. And they're like, oh, okay. And I guess for him, he wouldn't necessarily write that off as, okay, now it's not capitalist for a little while. Okay, now it's going to be capitalist for a little while. But I think I'm definitely in the same boat as you, but like, yeah, I don't know if I have the the understanding to really come down on it one way or the other. But I think it is good to say that he does have an explanation for why that is, and he does call it capitalist. Mm -hmm. And it's at least one way you could silence the chuds if you will when they say that like well if that's just your definition of capitalism then what you're saying capitalism wasn't slavery and it's like well i'd like to say that but you know yeah yeah he does he does do something right is Uh basically all i'm saying he's not just basically out here trying to like pat himself on the back i guess yeah like he wants to explain like this all does feel a little bit like he's trying to like he does have a story and everything fits very nicely into the story right up into the present day, boom. And then he's like, the future, fuck, I don't know.
1: (laughs) There are great portions of this essay, and particularly the narrative in the latter third, which is basically a history of what he would describe as the capitalist world economy, right? Like, Mm. there are are portions of that narrative that are incredibly illuminating and interesting. Particularly for me, one of the big blank spaces in my mind is if... If capitalism did originate in England and then spread, what was the nature of the spread of that mode of, of that uh, form of class relationship? Right. Like um, the sort of like, I think, quite bad faith criticism that you see made of Robert Brenner's argument is that, OK, Brenner is saying that there is this transformation of class relations that happens in England so capitalism can only come about from an internal change in the class relations inside of a country. So we have to look at colonial Peru and say that <laughs> it's something about the class relationship, the development of class relationships there that is going to institute capitalist class relations. And I guess I quite intuitively like to say, well, surely capitalist class relations can be enforced upon places. Yeah. It, when we read Alan Mixon's wood, it almost seemed like capitalism developed in England and then by various means, either by colonialism or by the necessity to compete with England, capitalist social relations were generally enforced upon the rest of the world kind of thing. But that leads me to believe that there is a long period of time, there's the the period of time which he's talking about, say 1520 all the way up to the present, which he is describing in terms of the development in various stages of the capitalist world economy he's describing it as capitalism starts and then it develops whereas i'd much rather read his history of this period of time as a kind of here is the period of time where capitalist social relations were winning out over feudal ones almost as if they were in existence at the same time which is what he very vehemently wants to oppose because he doesn't want to see two systems as existing at the same time but I guess it, in terms of like my understanding of the change amidst the continuity. I suppose like that process of change is protracted and uh, messy and gradual and multiple forms exist at the same time, mm. um, where he seems to object to that uh, form of analysis. I guess.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because like. The analysis that he has, like, necessitates having an understanding of how these capitalist social relations, like, operate in very different ways, you know what I mean? And, like, I don't know. I was really interested in the bits where he was basically trying to define what core, periphery, and then the third category, which is semi-periphery, were. And I think maybe this isn't the essay to go to if you want to understand them, but, like... I think that that is – if we're talking – if we're going to kind of like get to the point here where we're talking about like what can we take from this and what is like necessary and helpful to a Marxist understanding of history and class and the whole kit and caboodle, if you will, um, I think that quite a lot of thinking does need to be done about the way that those relations do operate because I don't think it is as simple as just like – well, the class relations here are the same as the class relations there because they clearly aren't, right? Um, At least in some cases. And I mean, like, I don't have the knowledge to say exactly where those are and what they would be, but like... I think that this kind of like world systems approach is necessary because if you had a like vulgarized understanding of Marxism and you wanted to just be like, well, these social relations are the same everywhere, dude, like whatever, that you're kind of falling into the same trap as like the bourgeois historians or sociologists or whatever as using this sole unit of analysis to try and account for totality in a way that I don't think necessarily works. But I think that it is extremely important to do what Brenner and all of his uh, following have done, which is give weight to class relations because that... Seems to be the engine of history, almost, which is odd. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think you're quite right to move us on to that sort of like conceptual division Mm. or demarcation of different types of states. It is the portion of this which is most intriguing as just something to incorporate into one's understanding of um, the economic relationships between states. Um, I mean, I guess in a sort of like... To offer a very brief rundown, it's relatively self explanatory, but like you've got your core states, which are um, the economically dominant ones. They have the military power, but they also have incredibly strong states. Um, they, they have a, a, a extensive development of a strong centralized state. And you have the core country, the periphery countries, where capital, the capitalists are sort of free to operate in kind of whatever way they want to be, as exploitative or extractive as they want to. And then you have this um, in-between formation, the semi-periphery countries, which he kind of describes as not being actually necessitated by the economic system itself, but it's more Mm. like a political necessity. It's a a sort of stabilizing function because if the semi-periphery countries didn't exist, you would have this very stark distinction between a wealthy core and highly and heavily exploited periphery. Hmm. And he almost thinks that, like, if you just had those two, the possibility for political conflict and insurrection and what have you would be uh, much more apparent
0: Well, yeah, that's his way, right, of just explaining the typical criticism of Marxism, which is just like, well, if it is, you know, the us versus the them, then why hasn't the us won? Because we're so – there's so many more of us. Yeah. And it's funny because he does – at one point he's like – and I promise the semi-periphery thing is not inductive. It's deductive. I didn't just come up with it Mm because I needed to. And I don't know. It makes sense, but I also feel like he acknowledges that these three categories are very fluid – And he gives several historical examples of them being fluid. The most interesting one was definitely the uh, October Revolution in Russia, of which it was just the hundred and some odd anniversary of. Um, But I don't know. I feel like the only way I've come across Wolterstein's ideas before in the past has just been the map of the like, here's the core countries, here's the semi-periphery countries, and here's the periphery countries. And I, I don't know if I can really verbalize why this is, but that just kind of does rub me the wrong way because it's like, I don't know, I don't know, three categories. It seems like the point that he's trying to make is very well taken. And I think like any fool could see that there are core countries and there are periphery countries, but like, it almost seems like in demarcating the countries like this, it goes against what he's trying to do, which is to have this very totalistic, like fluid conception of history as a process. Um... But I guess we live in the present, so there you go. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's right. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, it's it, it's it's
1: um it's strange for a theory that's predicated on uh, determining or demonstrating a totality to have so many different
0: yeah subcategories and <laughs> yeah.
1: demarcations and ones which are very strict and don't have a lot of scope for gray area. And you're right to say there's a lot of scope for transition between, particularly for countries to transition between core periphery and semi-periphery um, and he makes quite a, quite a lot of his historical analysis is all about different countries adopting the role of uh, core status or multiple countries vying for the position of core status and then this relationship between the semi-periphery and the periphery and the the movement between the two say um, and the tactics and strategies that are used by different countries to try and advance their Mm. position in the world standing i suppose yeah um the other thing that i feel like it overlooks sometimes somewhat is like the relationship of the class struggle internal to any of these countries like it's just like this country uh functions as a kind of like vassal state to to supply inputs to the capitalist mode of production as it functions in the core countries like what about the relationship between the proletarians and the bourgeoisie's yeah, In these various countries of which those class relationships still exist, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think maybe to wrap us up, unless you had anything else you wanted to say on that. I don't think so, no. I think, <laughs> this is so fucking typical. While I was reading this, I was like... He's gonna only spend the last page talking about the transition to socialism. I was like, yeah, I guarantee yeah. it. And then it's like, okay, so he spends the last like two or three pages talking about the demise of the capitalism. He
1: spends like three paragraphs saying why making about, <laughs> predictions about the future is bad. And yeah. he's like, so I'm not gonna bother. Here's
0: my like yeah, exactly. back of a postcard yeah, kind like, of like typical. Postcard, you know. Um but anyway, I mean, I don't know. I I get frustrated with this stuff for the same reason that I get frustrated with the like strategy of patience stuff. Because it's like Systems theory as as it exists is basically like, while things are humming along, things are fine. And the system is going to do what the system is going to do. And, you know, uh, your actions might not have the biggest impact on that because the system's fine and it's stable and it's doing all right. But I mean, like, Wallerstein is implying that, like, things are getting to the point or they already have gotten to the point where the system is no longer stable. And... Something's going to bifurcate eventually. And he basically says that like, okay, you know, when systems start getting a bit chaotic and these contradictions, which he recognizes within capitalism, start to uh, be more, (laughs) you know what I mean, like then your actions have a bigger uh, impact. And then what everybody does, what we do as a class has a bigger impact and we're able to change things. And I guess the thing, maybe it doesn't it sits right it doesn't sit right with me just because it's so freaky is that it's like who knows what's gonna come next. It's like it would be great if it was socialism. These contradictions seem to point to the fact that it would need to be socialism, but like we don't really know. And I think that like maybe more than Wallerstein, the Brenner stuff worries me because it's like, wow, how random was that? Like in the Eduardo Galliano, we kind of came across the idea of like those stupid, lazy Spaniards could have done capitalism, but they spent it all on their villas and their goddamn swimming pools or whatever. That is kind of not really what he was saying. But he's like, it didn't actually really become capitalism until all these people accumulated all this wealth, blah, 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 with English, and they had these class relations, et etc. Et but it's like, the thing that doesn't sit right with me is just that kind of randomness. And it's like, if we're supposed to have this point of view of history where it's like, which would be incorrect to have like feudalism capitalism socialism um it doesn't leave much space for that hope for the future although i guess the systems theoretical approach of like now that the system's in chaos hey go do what you're gonna do because now is the time to make it count but also like wow how random was that this goddamn island it, it could have been something else mm-hmm. it could have been an absolutist estate it could have been this could have been that and it was this and it's like oh god <laughs> i don't know
1: I have a perhaps more pessimistic reading of oh, cool. this essay than I do of the Brenner thesis, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, one of the things I wanted to wheel back to very quickly was what he says about the Soviet Union, right? And he basically mm-hmm. makes the case that the capitalist class or the ruling class of the Soviet Union was incapable of a moving Russia. No, Sorry, the capitalist class of Tsarist uh, Russia was incapable of moving it out of its semi-periphery status and moving it toward a core. Position, And he basically makes the case that the, the Bolshevik takeover of power basically just served to move the Soviet Union or Russia toward a strengthening its semi-periphery status and moving it toward being a core status kind of thing, which is a little... Dep- I, don't, I mean, I don't want to celebrate the... Developments that happened in the 20th century in the Soviet Union as being very definitely a movement towards socialism. That's not what I'm saying at all. But at the same time, it's very depressing to think all of it—all that it served yeah. to do was to ensconce in, in or um, ensure the Soviet Union or Russia's position in the world capitalist economy and did nothing to break it out of that capitalist economy.
0: Well, to be fair to his reading, though, he does say that it wasn't just... To, from semi-periphery to core it was that they m- were slipping into the threat of slipping status. back into yeah. being a periphery country yeah
1: yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um but it to me it sort of feels like without a understanding of change coming about because of conflict between classes it's difficult to i didn't get a picture from this at all of how a kind of like transition to the socialist world government is meant to come about at all. And if anything, it makes the capitalist world economy, the world system that is uh, capitalism, so totemic Mm. that it's almost impossible to break out of it in his definition, I suppose. Mm. um, Yeah. So give me a (laughs) bit of like uh, Brennerite ambiguity.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <Any day. laughs> is always good. Yeah. <laughs> is always good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really appreciated this, though, and I think we should try and come back to him in the future. Yeah. Um, I really, like I said, I think I really appreciate, as much as I kind of don't really like the designation of periphery, semi-periphery, and core, I think it is necessary to understanding how periphery, how the periphery is actually taken advantage of, um, and it might be a bit more complicated than just saying, like, uh, the same way as the cap- class relations do everywhere, right? Um, it's but defi- yeah.
1: definitely a piece of terminology that I'd like to develop my understanding of and mm-hmm. use, and I guess I encourage other people to perhaps Check familiarize themselves with that terminology. If, if
0: for no other reason, then it's better than just saying first, second, and third world. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, yeah that's rock. Yeah, the typology that I slip into all too easily and do realize yeah. that it's... Um,
0: not exactly um pc i suppose (laughs) pc police huh um all right well we should actually read some brenner now i'm sold let's read some goddamn brenner (laughs) um and uh it good i i there was there's quite a bit in this that we didn't get to i would suggest that people actually do read this because like i don't know even if it's not something that you're going to wind up agreeing with in its totality um it's it's good to kind of have a like marketplace of ideas that's not what i mean but like what i mean is like you know if you just have the like typical vulgar marxist definition of like class relations determine everything you're gonna run into issues like slavery wait what and it's good to read people who like hey at least they have an explanation for why that mm-hmm. is so yeah i'd definitely suggest reading it
1: yeah I'm also keen to sort of work on problematizing the kind of like traditional Marxist division mm. of history into various strict modes of production. And so to get some other schemas, mm. um, and to get some other understandings of stages and transitions is mm. certainly, um, enlivening.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Look, like, one of the things I feel like a dog could tell you like f- feudal to capitalism, socialism, what? I don't, mm-hmm. Like, I feel like anyone could tell you that like that doesn't necessarily, uh, help your understanding of history. So, um, yeah, it's very good. And, I mean, just, you know, he credits Marx with helping him come to this idea, but, like, the idea of studying everything in its totality as opposed to just being, like, the class relations within Peru. But what about the class relations of the people that are, like, exploiting Peru, et cetera, et cetera? It's all good. It's all good stuff. Um, Is he alive? I have no idea. I'm going to guess no. Okay. (laughs) But if he was, come on the show, Emmanuel. Yeah. (laughs) um all right well fucking go watch our video that dan talked about uh on youtube it's great and i cry i don't actually cry but i come close to having a breakdown and uh yeah we're putting stuff on youtube so go check that out it's good stuff and uh, you're a human being so i'm sure you can find the xlr statements youtube channel you don't need (laughs) me to spell it out for you um all right you know what's weird is that on average we don't get beyond like double digits definitely not like triple digits for our views on youtube but for some reason the robert mcnamara video is 1500 yeah. it's like what the fuck <laughs> the algorithm is like taking advantage of the dead yeah 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> or we i, I just just sort of suspected that we broke out of our wheelhouse we we took somebody else's the name of somebody yeah. else's movie and <laughs> oh it, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah put like trailer in the hashtag yeah, people are searching for that and then oh, <laughs> I don't mind however we duke the stats, however yeah. we manipulate the algorithm. Yeah, exactly. That's the game, That's the YouTube game. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> next week we'll be talking about Britney Spears' uh, conservatorship or whatever so, <laughs> and the Marxist implications of that. Um, all right. Well, uh, this was great. And um, we will be back to do it again next week, which will be fun. Um, and eventually we will be finishing fucking... <laughs>
1: Mike, Mike McNair no. book. Yeah, so stick
0: around for that. And uh, yeah, very good stuff. My name's been Jack. Thanks. <laughs> My name's been Dan, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jack, for putting up with me once again. Yes. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> uh, see you next time. Yes, all